Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. From chapter 12 to chapter 42 of the book of Job, we're going to travel much quicker than we did in Job chapters 1 through 11. The reason is because we got a lot of background, we got a lot of understanding of what is happening, and now we're just going to continue to watch it unfold with with cycles 2 and 3 of the discussion, the fourth friend showing up, and then the interaction with God. In chapter 12, Job responds with sarcasm of his own. Um, he's responding to the sarcastic and cruel tone of Zophar, who has responded in chapter 11 to him. He says Zophar isn't as smart as he thinks he is. Um, Job knows everything that Zophar knows, and it's not that much. Um, the common assumption just isn't working out in reality. Like, I know what's supposed to happen, but it's not what's happening. Um, and you're not as smart as you think you are. In Verse thir- in chapter 13, verse 4, it talks about whitewashing with lies. Jesus talks about whitewashed tombs, Matthew chapter 23. Um, we see that again in Acts 23, as well as Ezekiel 13 and Ezekiel 22, 28. Job realizes that this conversation is going nowhere, and he just wishes to talk to God. Like, I just, y'all are not helpful. I don't want to talk to y'all. I want to talk to God. But... There's a whole lot more verbal sword crossing to come, like the friends won't let it go, um, and Job's going to keep coming back at them. They hurt him, and he's going to respond. I mean, see the conversation with his friends from this point as being part of his suffering. So he's lost all that he has. He is suffering in his body, and now his friends are going to cause him to suffer mentally and emotionally. Job warns them that they could fall under the same such scrutiny from God, and they might ought to be careful how they think they've had it all figured out. He'd like to see how they handle it. Um, Job has nothing else to lose at this point. In verse 15 of chapter 13, the King James Version says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Um, The context doesn't really support that particular rendering. In the NRSV, it says, um, I'm going to die, but with my last breath, I will still proclaim my innocence because I am, even when I stand face to face with the Almighty. Though he slay me, yet will I, I am right. I'm right. Um, There are no genuinely new ideas covered in the repetition of the cycles of debate. We have two more cycles. There's nothing new here. In fact, the conversation actually becomes increasingly acrimonious. The friends become desperate to prove that he is wicked so that they can keep their own schema intact. They can keep their own theology firmly in place. There's no hope in any of their words, and there's no changing anybody's mindset. It's just futile back-and-forth debate. In chapter 16, verses 18 through 22, Job um, Job creates a witness, 
almost like the umpire he longed for back earlier in chapter 9. The friends now even devolve into name-calling. Job calls the friends cattle. You're just stupid cows. And they're stupid, chapter 18, verse 3. In chapter 19, 1, it tells us how this feels. It feels like torment. This chapter is an absolute cry of anguish. It's quite personal. He begs them. He begs his friends to have pity. And ironically, this would have made his friends more merciful and just than God is appearing at this point. It's absolutely heartbreaking. Um, We should be irritated with the friends and heartbroken, moved to tears for Job. In chapter 19, verses 23 through 27, um, our books, um, it's the book's most famous lines that appear here. Um, It's a soprano aria in the third part of Handel's Messiah. It's unlikely that Job has God in mind here when he speaks of Redeemer. God is, at this point, the one who needs to defend his actions, not the one who would be trusted. The Redeemer is um, Redeemer is used of God in Isaiah in Second Isaiah, that second portion of the of the prophet Isaiah, and that's why we want to call God the Redeemer here. But it's unlikely that Job has that in mind. Most likely, he means Redeemer more along the lines of Ruth and Boaz. Boaz is asked to be her Redeemer to engage in a legal act that saves the line, the ancestral line of her dead husband, to redeem her, to redeem her marriage for someone to save her. And Job says he needs a savior. He needs someone to go into that heavenly courtroom and answer the Satan to fight back. In this scenario, God is the judge. Satan is the accuser. And Job is saying, I need a defender. I need a redeemer. If he can't have an impartial umpire and they aren't heeding him as witness, they aren't heeding his witness of his life, then maybe he could hire a lawyer. Maybe he could get someone to win in their farce of a court. Chapter 19, verses 26 and 27 is a reference to afterlife. That was not a common belief in the ancient world. Um, What he is saying is death may be the only way that he can get into that courtroom and answer um, what is happening, that the only place he might be able to go to to get this worked out. Job chapter 21, Job argues from observation that some of the wicked live long lives. They reach a comfortable old age. They are happy happy. And they are mourned and missed when they die. Their tombs remember them and their epitaphs laud their greatness. Um, And that's not the way it's supposed to be. And because of this, Job has to reject the assumption that good is rewarded and bad is punished. In chapter 6, verses 5 through 14, we find a hymn about the mysteries of God. Um, This does not sound at all like Job and was most likely inserted much later um, because we needed a little hope. We needed a little reminder. We needed this to not be 
the word about God. But in chapter 27, verses 2 through 6, this is definitely Job. Uh, Job is back speaking. And in my Bible, it indicates that Job speaks throughout chapter 27 and chapter 28. However, if you take a look at chapter 27, verses 7 through 23, this may in fact be a speech from Zophar. Um, If we're carrying through that cycle and coming in that order, he would be the third friend to make a statement. In chapter 28, there's an interlude. This comes out of the mouth of Job. Humans can do many wonderful things, but they cannot find the way to wisdom themselves. It's confusing why Job would say this and why he would say it now. Um, It's almost like right in the middle of a story, we've paused and said, and now for a word from our sponsor. Um, Or it could be like when a character in a play breaks character and addresses the audience directly. Um, Where like in the play, one of the characters, everything stops in the story and they turn to the audience and say something. There. Um, it, It was probably added put in the mouth of Job, but added by somebody who thought there needed to be some balance for the rantings of Job and his friends, especially if Job is to be declared innocent and righteous throughout this. Um, He had to have a moment of praising God, not just accusing him. Chapters 29 and 30 become Job's final defense. Chapter 31 is an oath of clearance. That's like a covenant was an ancient form of announcing one's innocence. There's very formal language. It appears here as this formal ritualized pronouncement. Verses 35 through 37 of chapter 31, um, in the middle of oath, Job has an outburst. (laughs) He's declaring his innocence, but he doesn't make it all the way through without saying, God, get down here. We, We need to talk about this. Chapters 32 through 37, uh, Elihu shows up. This is a new friend. Elihu is son of Barashel, the Buzite, from the family of Ram. There, that's a a Hebrew name. And Elihu is angry. Um, He's waited patiently because the others were older than he is. He was trying to show respect for his elders. But he is displeased with the way they've handled this. And he's heard enough from Job. He is going to say his piece now. He can hold his tongue no longer. Nothing the other friends have not already said is present here. It takes him a ridiculously long time to introduce himself. 24 verses, in fact, from chapter 32, verse 6 to chapter 33, verse 7. In chapter 38, though Elihu insisted that God would never deign to speak to Job or to any other mortal, God shows up, and he does so from the whirlwind. In chapter 38, verse 2, basically, uh, man up. You want to do this? All right, come on, let's do this. Um, There's a return to humility that God calls Job to engage in. Where were you when I was creating Answer me this. Um, surely you know, if you're so smart, if you if you know as much as I do, if you in fact have divine wisdom, 
um, then surely you know the answer to this. Where were you when this was happening? In chapter 38, verse 15, um, wicked is equated with ignorance, and a broken, uplifted arm is equated with pridefulness. In verse 19, remember that light was created before the sun, moon, and stars. So where does it live? Where does light live? In verse 21, there are echoes of where were you? Um, Are you old enough to have been around then? In verses 25 through 27, God is active even in areas where there are no humans. The whole cosmos belongs to God. And God is active everywhere. There are considerations beyond the concerns of human beings that are at play. Verses 28 and 29, um, father and mother of the rain and dew. God is the creator of all. In verse 31 and through 33, we see constellations. And we find two speeches from God to Job that are present here. One started in verse 1 of 38 and runs through chapter 39, verse 30. The other one runs chapter 40, verse 1 through chapter 41, verse 34. So we finish speech one, we move into speech two. There are two giant creatures of mythology that are seen as dangerous, terrifying, and antagonistic to God, but they too are God's creatures created by God. The behemoth is a great land beast, and the leviathan is the great sea serpent. So as we move into chapter 40, uh, God speaks in verses 1 and 2, Job speaks in verses 3 through 5, and then God picks up in verse 6 and speaks um, for the rest of the chapter. Chapter 40, verse 7 is virtually identical to chapter 38, verse 3. God talks about behemoth in chapter 40, verses 15 through 24, and Leviathan in chapter 41, verses 1 through 34. The universe is larger, more complex, and much more wondrous than Job and his friends imagine. Job is not the center of creation or of the universe. The world does not revolve around him, his notions of fairness or justice, nor does it revolve around us. We are not the center of creation or of the universe. Chapter 42, Job's first response is like that of a petulant child. I can't talk to you. You're not listening. I can't even talk to you. Um, But after the second speech, Job changes his mind. He responds with humility. He admits his lack of knowledge, his lack of understanding, He admits that he is not God. He doesn't understand, but it's because he can't understand because he's not God. Um, In verse 6, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. He's saying I am wrong and I sincerely change my mind. And with that, the poetry ends. Um, The only other section after we moved into chapter 3 was chapter 32, verses 1 through 5, were Um, prose, narrative, rather than poetry. In verses 7 through 17, um, God is angry with the friends. They have insisted on things that are not true, and their assertions have made God someone that God is not. Um, In our desire for everything to be black and white and to make God the one who ensures that, 
we can turn God into someone he is not, someone who is cruel, unjust, uncaring. Job, however, is praised for being real with God. Though the friends were not friendly, Job prays for them. They need to repent in the traditional sense, which is they have been sincerely wrong and they need to admit it and stop. Um, In fact, they're being called to do what they said Job needed to do. But it comes out in the end that Job wasn't the one who needed to do it. The friends are the ones who need to do it. And the story ends with everyone being properly rebuked and restored. The epilogue comes in verses 10 through 17, that there is good after suffering. Life comes with both blessing and cursing, goodness and bad. And often those overlap. They can sometimes even be simultaneous, and they tend to repeat. Um, Good follows bad, and bad follows good. Job finally gets some comfort and some sympathy. 140 years of blessing come after this time of trial. He has beautiful daughters. He once again has a large estate, and he sees four generations of his children. And in what is amazing, because it doesn't exist elsewhere in the Old Testament, really, his daughters are named, and they're given an inheritance. They are not property. They are people also created in the image of God Um, Chapter 42, verses 13 through 15. He gets the same blessings of children, and he gets double the amount of animals. At the beginning of our story, he had seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 donkeys. At the end of the story, he has seven sons, three daughters, 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. Having more children does not remove the pain and the loss of the children that were lost, but it is to say there are blessings and joys of children, of family, of life on the other side. And the doubling of the the animals doesn't mean that, that that didn't happen, but it means that you're not punished for the time that you lost because his herds would have continued to grow had he not lost them. So he's given back what they would have been, what they could have been if that had not happened. There's another verse in the prophets that says, God will restore the years the locusts have eaten, meaning all that has happened to you that has been bad, God will restore it. He'll He'll bless you as though it never happened. I think about that when I think about the time I spent not responding to my call, the time we spend in rebellion or pain or suffering, that there's good on the other side of it. And it doesn't erase the fact that that happened, but there's good that comes following the suffering. Um, And we can use that suffering to our good. So the book of Job exists to say, the world is complex and a rigid system of good is rewarded and bad is punished in this life is not something we can always discern and see, that God is wiser and smarter and bigger and um, still in charge of it all, but we can't fully understand how God works, and that Job was innocent. 
but we can take our pain, our suffering, and our lack of understanding to God, and He will not see it as something deserving of punishment. He actually wrestles with us and helps us in the midst of it. So that is the book of Job and what Job exists to to witness to us.